Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafsal, I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. Uh, so today we have James Pomeroy from HSBC. So James, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, we were just discussing a little bit earlier uh, the last time you came on the podcast, so we've deduced it was, uh, it was early 2021. Yeah, it's quite a long time. It, quite a lot has changed. <laughs> absolutely. I guess at the time, I guess we go straight into it, but at the time uh, we were discussing about you moving house and kind of logistically placing yourself into the, the hybrid work mode. Um, uh, how that, how's that evolved for you personally and how's that evolved uh, subsequently in terms of your work? I think it's an interesting one because my example of what I've done over the course of the last couple of years is pretty actually consistent with what most knowledge workers seem to be doing, which is people are still not necessarily flooding out of big cities because a lot of people did that in 2020 and 2021. You had this sort of enormous flow. But people are still looking for quality of life. They're looking for houses with gardens, with a home office, um, places they can have a pet. All of these things that people have suddenly really put a lot more value on um, since the pandemic, since you start thinking about, okay, do I need to be in the office five days a week or two days a week or three days a week? But one thing we have noticed that's changed is that people have stopped moving to villages and to Cornwall and to places in the middle of nowhere. Because, too far, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. People have really focused their mind on the, okay, I do need to come into the city or into the office um, semi-regularly, either to go to the office or, as I find myself quite a lot, coming and doing things like this, you know, coming into the city to do things um, in person or at conferences and events, and that connectivity is important. So we continue to see, actually, in housing markets, a, a big disparity between central London in the UK sense, and the same is true in, in large cities um, elsewhere. And essentially the, the donut, that the areas around these big cities that are commutable, striking distance places, they're doing really well. And part of that is because people want to go and live in these places, but also there's no supply. No, not just here in the UK, but across um, most of the developed world. We just haven't built enough homes um, for a long, long time. In particular, we haven't built homes in these places that people have suddenly decided are the best places in the world to live. And so what you're seeing is still quite a lot of house price appreciation in certain pockets of the economy, despite higher interest rates and a much more challenging um, real estate environment. Mm. No, I think it's very noticeable. Certainly in, I, I'm in that sort of 45-minute zone um, into into town, and prices have actually held up. Actually, yeah. they haven't. Um, even you know, uh, prices have come down. You know, in London, in particular, central London and elsewhere. Uh, but I guess if you're a bit further out, you're probably seeing a lot more volatility now. Yeah, I think so because you've got fewer properties, fewer transactions. It doesn't take as much to move the market. But the other part of this story is that supply. Now, if you've got very desirable towns where there just hasn't been any construction for a long time, that keeping a floor under under prices. And people aren't selling in these places either. And, and this is something that's not just relevant in those parts of the world. It's something we're seeing in property markets across the world. Because if you've got a drop in demand, which we've clearly got with much higher interest rates, if supply is not there, if people aren't selling, prices don't drop anywhere near as much. And the best example of this at the moment is just broadly US property markets, where housing transactions are off a cliff, but prices are down less than 5%. Because if you've got a 30-year mortgage, you just don't want to move, because suddenly you're taking on a much, much higher um, cost. And it's that same sort of story playing out in these pockets of the world where people are choosing um, to spend a little bit more time and choosing to live um, much more so than they did before the pandemic. Mm. So uh, let me embellish that that uh, residential story a bit more. Obviously, it's very noticeable, say, from the investment markets perspective, that, say, home building stocks are basically mm. back to where they were, you know, uh, in 20, late 2021. Mm. Um, and as you say, 
you know, those share prices have done very well, those property prices have done very well. Um, how do you think that's going to evolve, you know, over the next sort of six to 12 months? Do you think that supply, I guess in the US is a bit more readily available than it is in other places. Do you think that supply is going to be there and, and how quickly? It's a big challenge because a couple of things have held back housing construction in the last couple of years. Some of it has been essentially financing and people not wanting to build houses during an incredibly difficult pandemic period. The other part of it has been getting stuff, right? Global supply chain challenges haven't just meant we couldn't get the latest electronics or the latest car or whatever we choose to buy. It's held up construction, it's held up parts, it's held up all of those things. So you are starting to see a little bit of that come through. Completions of homes and so on is starting to hit the market. So supply edging up um, just a little bit. But you've still got this backlog, essentially. We, we had a huge drop in the number of homes built in the last, probably last decade, but in particular the last three years. So we're playing catch up a little bit, a little bit more supply um, coming on the market. Um, but n- nothing that's really changing the game in terms of that, so that supply-demand imbalance. Mm. Um, and then uh, another theme that certainly we're seeing here in uh, London a little bit more is lots of Americans coming in and buying property, certainly around uh, Mayfair and the kind of central London area. Uh, are you seeing some of that, uh, I call it, uh, I don't know, nomadic lifestyle <laughs> appearing? I know, for example, we were talking to a few people this morning about home prices in Dubai, for example, have gone up partly because of Russians and Ukrainians have suddenly decided that's going to be the next best place they're going to be. But also you've seen whole lot of hedge funds just announced recently they're going to be relocating there because I guess it's Dubai is a new Monaco. <laughs> exactly. There's there's certain places that are just doing very, very well because of essentially a much more geographically mobile workforce. Now, if you start thinking about the world today, you don't necessarily need to, in many knowledge worker jobs, be located in a specific location because much more is done virtually or you yourself can travel much more easily or whatever it needs to be. There's less of a sort of geographical attachment to London or New York or Hong Kong and other cities can do very, very well. And it may well be that Dubai does very well um, for now and a large parts of the Middle East are they're doing well as a result of this sort of inflow of people and this attraction of capital. Mm. But it's also going to be other cities are going to pick up some of that. You know, some cities are going to do well in terms of attracting creative types. Some are going to do well in terms of finance. Some are going to do well in terms of tech. And it's about a lot of these cities how do you appeal to people it's almost it creates this competition for talent that exists in a way that never did before because previously it was we need to create the jobs and then people will come now it's create a high quality of life people will come and that will bring other jobs Mm. and actually i think that's gonna be one of the most interesting things not just this year but the next sort of decade and beyond how cities and countries compete for that much more geographically mobile people it's probably good news in terms of investment it's probably good news in terms of quality of life Mm. So in your mind, you know, which of the cities have um, have really engaged that and have just made it a lot more attractive and have been purposeful about mm. making the change? The best example in Europe in particular is Amsterdam. Um, clearly sensing an opportunity um, on the back of Brexit and a lot of businesses needing to set up an operation in the EU in one way, shape or form, Amsterdam has basically leapt on its credentials as a fun place to live. If you're in your 20s and you love living in London because it's got loads of entertainment, loads of things going on, Amsterdam is saying, well, we're a mini London, you can cycle everywhere, got fantastic public transport, fantastic quality of life, Great airport, which weirdly is one of those things people say they like about cities. We want to be able to get out of it, but it does uh, it does tick a box. And that quality of life. And essentially, they're doing a really, really good job um, of attracting people. When we look at this sort of analysis across the world, which cities do score very, very well, 
there's almost two buckets. There's just sort of very smart, very sort of efficient, high-tech cities. Singapore always wins out on that sort of side of things. And the Middle East is basically following that model. You know, Dubai is a great example of that, following that sort of um, Singapore-type model. But the other city that always stands out as very, very interesting, well, two cities actually stand out very interesting. One is Copenhagen. Um, always seems to win or come very highly on quality of life, environmental quality, public transportation, all of those sorts of things. And the other one is Vienna, um, a city that really doesn't strike many people as where would you go and live Vienna? Wouldn't be first choice. But it scores really, really well on quality of transport, quality of housing, environmental scores, quality of all of these things that people want. And actually cities like that will probably start to outperform because they're going to naturally attract high-skilled people, bring in their um, their earnings and spend that locally and help to lift the local economy. And I think that sort of investment in how can you replicate your Viennas of the world, I think mm. is going to be a lesson for everyone. Mm. Oh, very interesting. So moving then on to commercial real estate, um, Sunny. EFG, there's a lot talked about it. Uh, the FT has been running regular articles on the Blackstone REIT and its uh, gating problems and various other things. Um, you know, uh, what is your perspective on this um, or this particular phenomenon? But maybe there's sort of more deep underlying challenges that may be sort of lurking that really haven't exposed themselves as yet. So commercial real estate has been a slightly odd one where all of these changes we've seen in terms of working habits, the amount of time people spend in offices should have been a much bigger hit to the sector than has actually played out. All logic, if you go through, okay, the average worker does half their time in the office, half the time at home, you're probably going to need to cut the amount of um, commercial real estate quite considerably, not just in terms of offices, but all the services that benefit from it. So if you have half the amount of people in the office, you have half the amount of people buying lunch, half the amount of people buying coffee, it makes a big difference and it spirals through. We haven't really seen that impact quite yet. And I think there's a couple of things here. One is on the sort of commercial real estate usage of space. So essentially, we used to have a world where we'd all come into the office five days a week. We'd all sit basically shoulder to shoulder and we wouldn't have many meeting rooms and we wouldn't have many other spaces. But now people are coming into offices for a purpose. It's to be on video calls or it's to sit and work with their team or it's to socialize. And those sorts of things actually need more space. So what you are seeing is a lot of real estate that's being taken out using nearly as much space, but also to have um, a lot of other areas that we didn't need before. It's also worth flagging that a lot of businesses who are trying to introduce hybrid models, which appear to be the sort of dominating sort of model that businesses are using, what they don't want to be doing is enforcing when people come into the office because it's that that sort of takes away the flexibility that businesses are trying to offer. So if you say to your entire workforce, we want you in three days a week, but you choose which days they are, you almost need to have as many desks as you have people anyway, yeah, because yeah. otherwise you, you create bigger problems. So what you end up getting is actually that you haven't seen that same reduction in real estate yet that we may have expected. There is at least some um, demand coming out, but it's not quite as dramatic as you'd think given um, these enormous shocks um, through the system. So that's, that's, that for me is, is something that's sort of potentially a problem further down the line. If businesses start to think seriously about do we need an office at all? Do we really really think about um, these sorts of challenges? So that's, that, that for me is the biggest hurdle I think for, for, for commercial real estate at the moment. Mm. I guess that's the, I guess the lease cycle as well. You know, typically leases will be five yeah. to ten years and as you get towards that, you, you know, you'll start start to make decisions. Uh, I think what's interesting, we're at uh, EFT's offices in uh, Park House, and uh, uh, you can see a lot more space. It's much more brighter. It's a much more appealing place to work, absolutely. Uh, and there are a lot more places to sit down and 
you know, um, yeah. uh, see both clients and actually see also colleagues and catch up for a coffee and yeah. all those sort of things. So, yeah, definitely a much, much better work uh, environment and actually less desks and more space. Yeah, actually. exactly. And what we're also seeing is when people come into offices, and this is the other reason why commercial real estate more broadly hasn't done as badly as you might think, is people are then doing other things. So if you look on some of the data we were tracking all the way through 2022, say Pret's index, the one that Bloomberg put together, so this mm. amount of sales by Pret, and you mm. can track almost these sorts of high-frequency spending indicators against public transportation usage. And it looks like people were coming in the office much, much less, but people were going out more. So essentially, <laughs> if you were coming in the office, you were more likely to go for lunch. Yeah. Because you say yeah. you're only in three days a week, you go and get a lunch out every time you're in. Yeah. Whereas, so you, don't, you haven't even had that same drag to a lot of the businesses that surround offices as we might have expected, because people when they come into the office, seem to be more broadly using it as an opportunity to do something with colleagues after work, do something with friends after work, or go out for lunch, or whatever it needs to be. And so we're not seeing that same spillover as well. So sort of you allude to, spending more time with people has gone beyond the office as well, and that's propping up some of the commercial real estate demand, um, more so than you might have initially expected. So um, I guess the big question for many senior management teams and the worry, Sally, I, I know that we've had that discussion as well, is around productivity. Yeah. Um, have, you, have you seen any sort of statistics around the new working uh, model and productivity? I think the the sense, you know, and I, I guess a lot of this is um, anecdotal, mm. clearly. But it seems like in 2020, when we really started to work from home, there was a huge amount of productivity because you yeah. basically plowed, you know, your two-hour commute or your hour-and-a-half commute to do work um but uh, and then that seemed to kind of dissipate in 21 and and uh came to 22 and it just seems a little bit less productive yeah there's a lot of um debate about this and i think a lot of people's opinions are heavily influenced by their own circumstances and if you listen to what a lot of um the real experts on remote working and to be honest there is only one real expert on remote working that's a guy called nick bloom an economist um based in the us um who's written about this subject long before um the pandemic and continues to do some excellent work on it and a lot of the work he talks about is how the productivity impact of remote working and flexible working is so dependent on your individual role and how most jobs are much better to do from home. If you think about anything that's done in isolation is better off without distractions. Anything that's speaking to someone on a, on a webcam, on Zoom or however it needs to be is better off in an area without as many distractions rather than an open office because there's almost this negative spillover to your colleagues if you're, mm. if you're on calls. But then you also have this collaboration element, which is important for many roles. And you also have the training of junior staff, which can depend in terms of its importance in different roles and how you end up teaching people. So it's very, very role dependent. But one thing we have seen is that time saving is still enormous. And even though, as you say, there's been a little bit of a row back in terms of some of the um, sort of shocks in terms of productivity gains we've seen. Some of the latest evidence and some of the latest um, surveys suggest that people who work from home are saving more than an hour a day on average in time. And what they appear to be doing is putting probably about half of that, maybe a little bit more, back into additional work. And the other half goes on personal time. And there's a big question that comes out of that is, is that good or bad? Because putting the additional time into work, is that unproductive work? Or is it just making sure things are done and businesses get more out of their people within a day? 
But also, is there a spillover here that comes from satisfaction, from happiness, from stress, from all of these things, which are almost impossible to quantify? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people will argue that if you've got a happier, more flexible workforce who can do things as suits, that carries with it a whole load of other productivity gains, meaning that when they are sat at the desk working, they're better as well. So there's a whole load of questions out there. It's not 100% whether it's good or bad. The evidence does suggest at the margin it's probably good, but it needs to be done in the right way given the roles and given the individual people. Otherwise, it you lose those benefits. Yeah, and I think, yeah, we'll, I guess we'll, we'll just evolve the thinking. Exactly. And, and I think that's, that's right. It's probably the right answer is that, you know, you won't get it right first time, but as time goes on, you you start to sell yeah. into that groove. You know, the the guys here just complain because obviously everyone wants to come Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday into <laughs> yeah. the office, Monday, Friday, less so. But you know, we we don't have enough desks on those days, exactly, yeah. so then they've got to they've got to be quite strategic in the way they uh, they uh, organise themselves. So, uh, but I think that's an evolution uh, that will just get better over time. Um, Moving on to, um, I guess, some of the more challenging parts of commercial real estate. Um, obviously, interest rates have, are going up. That clearly has uh, uh, impact on on valuation. Um, we then have um, sort of environmental considerations. How much more money needs to be put into a building to ensure it's uh, you know uh, environmentally compliant. Um, how much of that is starting to kind of get built into valuations of uh, some of these uh, properties or is it still some, you know, so uh, this is the long grass, we don't need to worry till 2030? It's clearly a topic that's going to get more and more attention um, from, from all sorts of different lenses, to be honest, because a lot of businesses are going to want to be based in green energy efficient buildings, partly for cost purposes course, and partly yeah. for their own sort of sort of mantra as a business you know you want to be talking about in sustainability you want to be operating in buildings and and so on that they're, they're playing their role so we just think this sort of green fitting of buildings is one of those trends that's not going away anytime soon it's going to get more and more important more and more relevant and to us essentially it's it's one of those things that's good news and bad news it's bad news if you're a business who needs to worry about these extra costs but when you think about it the main purpose of doing this sort of thing is to cut carbon emissions in urban areas and buildings are one of the biggest causes of emissions we're sat here in central london the traffic on the street is one thing but the other one is what's coming off of building usage and essentially if we can cut that down then you get to urban areas which are much nicer places to spend time as and and that has benefits as well so it's a it's clearly a part of the um story that's only going to get more and more important we think businesses will continue to put a weight sort of a benefit on the that green um side of these buildings partly because it's good news and good sort of uh, pr essentially but also it does help in terms of energy costs and so on so it's going to keep happening we think broadly it's a good thing a bit more investment a bit more uh uh, help in terms of greening up cities um, but nonetheless uh, a bit of a, net, a cost challenge um, for businesses who've got to incorporate it so what's your um, forecast for say i know london commercial real estate over the next sort of 12 to 24 months obviously it's a bit more challenging in the uk than it is <laughs> exactly, other places yeah. what's your what's your sense so we don't have sort of you know, point forecast on prices and so on but yeah. in terms of demand it feels like it's going to go down, but not as much as we would have initially thought. And right. I think it's a sort of, we haven't seen the full impact of the pandemic shock yet because of leases not expiring. There's going to be more of the same story that we saw towards the end of 2022. That sort of story carrying on of at the margin, businesses stepping away from real estate. But it's not as if no one wants an office anymore. It's not as if you don't want any coffee shops, you don't want the restaurants, because those places are full and they're doing well. So 
we're not seeing that 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 same impact as we might have thought but at the margin commercial real estate is probably less attractive today than it was in 2019 Mm, yeah um so uh, another topic that uh, you've been writing uh, extensively about recently or at least talking about it has been artificial intelligence and uh and uh, you know replacing uh the human and obviously chat gpt and uh and bard now which is the the google version um have come out um uh, obviously um, uh, at a recent investment conference i actually kicked off the conference with a chat gpt asking how do i open a conference Uh, and it actually gave a reasonable answer to uh to the question Uh, what are your sort of uh, thoughts uh around it and you know how do you think it will evolve yeah, of course, we're very early days in terms of AI at the moment. The stuff that's out there, ChatGPT and, and, and Bard, they're interesting more than they are useful in terms of a broad sweeping macro economic impact. Uh, and I think what we're at the state where we are at the moment is a lot of these technologies are helpful for a lot of people in terms of their job. If you think about my job as a research analyst, ChatGPT is unbelievably useful. You know, the ability to quickly collate historical research or to find examples, all of these things, is a massive time saver. But that same implication isn't necessarily true for every job in the economy. Mm. And you've got to then think about some of the challenges you, you're facing with these technologies today. There's an enormous bias problem. You can argue about whether it's right or wrong, but ChatGPT won't answer questions about certain topics or people. And you can say, well, that's right or wrong, but someone's got to make that decision. Mm. And essentially, because someone's making these decisions, there's biases within the answers that are being produced. Is that what we want? Probably not. Then you've got the question about the accuracy. ChatGPT is not connected to the internet. So mm. it's got stale answers. It's got wrong answers. It's, it relies on humans going out and checking things. So we're basically thinking at the moment, this early stage of AI, it's not necessarily going to take people's jobs. It's going to be a support for a lot of jobs. But what's going to happen over time is you're going to see more and more improvements in artificial intelligence that allows it to be more embedded into different parts of different roles. And that may well mean we see some jobs which you just need fewer people to do it. Process heavy jobs where AI is able to take off some of that workload at a cost saving for businesses are going to do it. But anything that's creative, it's more and anything that comes up with sort of content generation we see artificial intelligence as more of a support tool than a replacement tool. It speeds up your process. That has a couple of takeaways. One is is productivity enhancing quite clearly. It's cost saving for businesses quite clearly. But also what happens if this acts as the trigger to mean that we can work less? Mm. And if you go right the way back to um, the 70s and you look at the working hours that people have done during the week, they're in terminal decline until the financial crisis. And since then, during the period of the greatest improvements in communications technology possible, massive time savings that come from how easy it is to find information, to communicate, all of these things, what's been our response? It's to work more. And then we just mentioned about people get the greatest productivity enhancement you could possibly imagine, not needing to commute. What do we do? We work more. Mm. So what if some of these enhancements, they're not game-changing enough that they wipe out entire roles, But what if they cut two or three hours out of your working week? And I think that, at least in the near term, with what the facts we have, or the facts we have in terms of where our AI is and where it's likely to develop, feels like a relatively plausible um, outcome to me. And if that's the case, it's good news for leisure, because suddenly we're all going to have a couple extra hours a week. What are we going to do with that? Well, the last couple of years have shown us what we love doing. That's going out to events, it's consuming content, it's watching Netflix, whatever it needs to be. 
but leisure, recreation, that side of the economy may get a little bit of a kick if we use AI in that perspective rather than it just taking away loads of people's jobs. Mm. So going, going back to one point you made around the, the bias, um, and obviously that's a, you know, it's a huge problem. Um, and, uh, you know, how do you think we're going to f- find the solutions to that or we're just going to live with it? I think it's it's one way you... You, if you want to live with it, it, it changes what you can use this technology for. It has to be part of the process rather than the whole process. Or you have to use it for certain things that can't be influenced by bias. Mm-hmm. So if you think about heavily process-driven tasks, I, I saw something the other day talking about accountancy. It's a great example. Very, very rules-based mm-hmm. um, situation. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to take away the whole job of accountants, but a lot of the work it can where there can't be a bias because it's right or wrong. It's maths, it's fact. That sort of part of, 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 um, of roles are much more vulnerable to AI or can be helped by AI because there's no bias involved. But of course, at the end of the day, any sort of programmed robot or artificial intelligence or whatever it needs to be the use of technology, we have to be very careful about how it ends up being used. I don't think we're going to get to a situation where you can just always take the output of AI for creative tasks and just say that's that. There's always going to have to be a human involvement to think about bias, think about accuracy, think about the message in the story, whether it's actually what you want to say rather than just letting it run wild. And that's why we're maybe optimistic is probably the, the, the wrong word, but it's sort of more of the view that it's not going to take away loads and loads of jobs because I think there's too many fundamental limitations to how it could be used in, in a lot of our jobs day to day. I read a very interesting article about um, AI sifting through uh, intern CVs <laughs> um, where you know users using sort of pattern recognition to, to try and figure out mm. the values that they need as part of their program yeah. versus the hundreds and hundreds of CVs they actually get and, yeah. and get the, get the, um, the, the scanner to kind of work it through. Um, and of course that just creates huge amount of bias yeah. and it, you know, the connotations of it all are just quite frightening. You know, I think about diverse, diversity, I think oh, all yeah. those sort of things is just absolutely awful. Um, do you think that regulation is going to, although it's very limited at the moment and I haven't seen much in terms of regulation, do you think regulation is going to be a big part of this going forward? It's, it's almost certainly going to have to be. I mean, if your example on CVs is fantastic because you've essentially replaced what we know is human bias yes. with AI bias. Yes. You know, it's essentially yeah. we've just yeah. taken exactly the same problem and put it into a computerized system. And so you're going to need much more regulation in terms of how you can use these tools, whether they're going to be, you know, whether, how much checking there is of the output, how involved it is in the end and, and product is going to be really important. And I just think it's something that where we are and what we know and the limitations that we know in so many jobs, you just can't let it run wild. And I think that's the the bit that markets at the moment and the way people are talking about AI is if it's going to be all-consuming and it's going to take all of our jobs and it's going to do everything, but there's such massive limitations for the way that we have to get these exact considerations that I'm not necessarily pessimistic about AI. I think it's a fantastic tool that's going to lead to huge productivity enhancements. I just don't think it's going to take over the world to the same degree um, as some people may be expecting, given the news reports you'll have seen in the last couple of weeks about how it's going to take out X thousand or million jobs and all of these sorts of things. I think that's a sort of 
a pipe dream almost of how how uh, widespread this stuff could become. Mm. I guess the other challenge, uh, something that the markets are trying to grapple with, you know, is Bard better than ChatGPT? Uh, and, uh, you know, what other, uh, I guess the Baidu version now is coming out yeah, as well. So yeah. you got all these sort of different different versions. You know, I, uh, my, my first degree was math, so I'm just assuming it's all going to regress to the same thing. Yeah. Um, and in the end, the com- competitive advantage of the different ones are really not going to last. Yeah, that's something that always comes up when we talk about anything to do with thematics and economics is you know, people are always going, who are the winners? Who are the winners? And you go, well, what I care about is the underlying technology. Mm. And it doesn't matter to me which one of these is best. It's which one ends up, well, so where does the overall technology go to? Mm. And the chances are, as you say, we do converge on some sort of some sort of central path because that's what's happened with these sorts of technological breakthroughs over time. And everyone will learn from each other. We will get some sort of central case of what this stuff can do. And the big question is, you know, how easily is it to embed these sorts of developments into other parts of the economy? Mm. You know, is it that it's just helpful for me writing an economics report? Or is it that... AI helps us to accelerate medical trials because you can automate huge processes um, regarding that or breakthroughs in other forms of technology. Or is it that we see um, that it's great for teachers or lawyers or all these different people? But again, in many of these situations, it's not taking away jobs. Mm. It's speeding up jobs and making them more efficient to meaning we can spend much more time doing the stuff that's value-add and useful and interesting. And I think that's that's where we're moving towards. Mm. So um, um, coming towards uh, the end, and uh, uh, if if you do follow James on LinkedIn as I do, and uh, uh, you know you one of your big passions is Newcastle United. Uh, unfortunately, I'm a Manchester United fan, so uh, we uh, we've got a match coming up. Uh, one, yeah. A very important one. What are, what are your what are your thinking, and what are you thinking about Newcastle? This is really my area of expertise. <laughs> um, Newcastle having the greatest season of my adult life, um, which has been fantastic. The only problem is that it's come with uh, an impossibility to get tickets. There's a great example <laughs> of the post-pandemic economy is that everyone wants to go and enjoy consuming services and recreation, and clearly everyone wants to go and buy Newcastle United tickets. Newcastle having a great season, but on paper our team is a long way short of the big six. You know, yeah. realistically on paper you'd fancy Manchester United to beat us um, in in the League Cup final. But it's been an amazing journey. We're, we're we're sort of on the path to being a competitor at the top end of the table, being in a cup final, being in a European race. This is something I don't think any Newcastle would have <laughs> dreamt of. This time, this time a year ago, we were in the bottom three, yeah. deep in a relegation battle. And with a team who most people had given up on and mm. the turnaround in 12 months is amazing. And hopefully it can continue. And if we can win a trophy for the first time in more than 60 years, it would be. Oh, is it really 60 years? More than 60 oh, years. my word. Okay. about 66 or 67 okay. years I'm, now. I'm sure a Man United fan can give up the League Cup. <laughs> <laughs> you so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After 60 years. Well, James, thank you very much for uh, taking the time coming in and uh, uh, always fascinating to talk to you. I think there's a lot of you know, interesting themes, you know, coming out uh, uh, around hybrid work and how the landscape's going to change. And of course, uh, AI. And uh, I guess, uh, you know, be careful not to buy the hype. <laughs> exactly. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, that wraps us up for, for today. And uh, thank you very much uh, for listening. And we'll uh, be uh, uh, out again with the next podcast in, uh, in a few days' time. Thank you very much and speak to you soon.